Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 20th, we're studying Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 58. Jesus concludes his discourse of parables with the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, and the parable of the net. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz is the Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's good to hear, be here. Pastor Agrotowitz, as we get started this morning, give us some context. We're, we're dropping in at the very end of this long discourse of Jesus, these parables that he's been telling. What do we need to know as we look forward to this text today? Well, he's pouring it on pretty thick in terms of parables. We've already been through a number of parables before we get to the parable of the hidden treasure. The Sermon on the Mount has passed as well, so we have some material to read and process before coming into the hidden treasure parable, which I think is important when trying to interpret what exactly our Lord is teaching us in these parables, which, I mean, admittedly can be difficult to look at, and sometimes uh, there's there's more than one way of looking at a parable, and the interpretation and conclusion can fit with um, the entirety of Holy Writ. When you come to the parable of the hidden treasure, we've already gone through a number of other parables, and a couple of um, big ones, some ones that, that many Christians know, one being the parable of the sower. And that's an important one because we get an explanation to the parable of the sower, with most of Jesus' parables, there's not an explanation given. He speaks them, and they just kind of hang out there. Uh, the sower is not one of those. We get an explanation for it, and also for the parable of the weeds. Jesus will also explain that one. These explanations, I think, are helpful in determining how we can see the other parables going forward. So it's not like we're coming into the hidden treasure, and that's the first parable he drops at us. Also, too, leading up to this, he tells us the purpose of the parables, and I think that's important, too, and we can discuss a little bit about that. So that's the general context, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, a number of big parables, like the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds. We've also heard about the parable of the mustard seed and the parable about leaven and bread, and so that's all going to play a part in our interpretation of this great hidden treasure parable and of the parable of the pearl of great value, and even the parable of the net. With the, with the purpose of the parables, we should pay attention that the audience here in the parables that we're going to read today is the disciples. Jesus is inside the house with the disciples. The crowds have, have left the scene. And I think that's important because the purpose of the parables, it, it hits people differently, depending on whether they're in or out, you might say. Pastor Grotowitz, give us some, some of that context. Right. Okay, so the disciples, Jesus will tell them, yeah, I like how you put it, it hits them differently, whether they're in or out. And uh, I'm assuming you mean either you're in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom, a believer or an unbeliever. And so for the disciples, 
the Lord is going to tell them, ask, after they ask the question, why do you speak in parables? He says, well, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has, it has not been given. And then he goes on to quote a passage from Isaiah. To summarize it, you know, the ones who believe and hear this word, they're going to respond how faithful believers respond. Tell me more. And they, it's not at all as if they have the answer to everything or even understand the parables right off the bat. I mean, when it comes to the parable of the weeds, he leans forward, excuse me, the disciples lean in, and they, they, they say, explain to us the parable of the, of the weeds of the field. Because, again, they want to know more, and the Lord is going to continue teaching them and so forth. Now, you can juxtapose this with a couple of things. If you look at Matthew chapter 21, the Lord Jesus is telling them the parable of the tenants. Okay? And here he's got more people in front of him not just the disciples, because the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're going to catch, they're going to hear these parables. And so in verse 45, after the parable of the tenants, we get this line. So this is 2145. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they hear it. They know who that Jesus is getting at. He's talking about his enemies, and yet they want to arrest him. They still want him out of the picture. So that's an example of a negative response, a response of the unbeliever to hear the word, and the eyes just stay shut, the ears stay closed, and the, the chief priests, Pharisees, and the scribes are, are thinking every way that they can to get rid of the Lord of glory. So you do have different responses to our, our, our teaching, the Lord's teaching, I said our teaching, now I'm thinking about the teaching of any pastor today, the teaching of the church, the, uh, the kerygma, the proclamation of the gospel, God's law and his gospel, the full counsel of his word continues to go forth and people respond in different ways. Um, for some, the law brings wrath, the people hear it and they, they stay right there, they're wrathful against God, they do not want to hear about their sin, and yet others hear it, rejoice, and they want to learn more. The parables function in the same way. Um, also, when you dig into the grammar of the text, when the Lord is teaching about the purpose of the parable, so if you go back to Matthew 13, and he's teaching his disciples, you know, he, he, it's one of those moments when he's just taking time to catechize these future apostles of the church. He quotes from Isaiah 6, 9, and you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So that's a prophecy fulfilled in the parabolic preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, backing up a little before that, we have this, this passage, and this is verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Now, I argue it gets a little clearer if you jump to, to Mark and Luke. So Luke 8.10, I'll just go there. We see a similar, a similar teaching when Jesus says, To you it has been given to the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. And then we have so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Mark has the same grammatical construction there. Let me explain that a little bit. When it says, so that seeing they may not see, another way of translating that 
would be in order that seeing they do not see or hearing they do not hear. It's it's a Greek it's a Greek word, a conjunction. Henna is how it's pronounced, and a henna clause is a clause of purpose or result. And I did look at my Greek lexicon shortly before this interview just to make sure you know I was I was correct because a henna clause can be interpreted in a couple different ways, and, and the lexicon that I have does just treat it as a marker serving. Uh, serving as a, it says right here, a substitute for the infinitive of result. So the idea here is the result. The parables are going to hit these unbelievers who will hear these parables, and their eyes are going to be blind, their ears will be dull, and that's going to be the consequence of of their unbelief and what the Lord is teaching them. To put it simply, the Lord is giving them what they want, closed eyes, ears that are shut to the gospel, and the testimony of who he is and what he has come to do. But the parables that he tells today are told to his disciples, and so we should expect that they will be received in faith, as you said, that they'll want to know more, and and that they will receive these things as a gift from God. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at the text. We're here in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 44. Jesus is speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's the text for today, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 58. So, Pastor Agrotowitz, the text starts there with two very short parables, and it seems that they're related to each other. They have a a similar message. You've got the kingdom of heaven like a treasure hidden in a field. You've got the kingdom of heaven like a a pearl of great value. Help us dig into those parables. Yeah, right. Sure. So, when I was a younger man, and I would read these, the, the, the two, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. Let's, yeah, we'll start right there. You know, my initial response and understanding of these two parables was that it, it's on something of discipleship. Basically, do what you can, forsake all, be willing to give up everything for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And most scholars take some sort of version, variant of that, that these two parables are about discipleship. And I am sympathetic to that insofar as the Lord is not, I mean, he's playing for keeps, and he wants all of you, not some of you. The first commandment turns our hearts and minds to worship him and him alone. 
period. There are to be no other gods in our lives. Money, power, fame, this entire world needs to be cast aside as hearts of faith trust in God and look to him for all things, for all things good. So when you come at the two parables looking at it like that, the man selling everything he has to buy the field, the merchant in search of fine pearls, there is this sense of the Christian needing to do all of these things, to forsake all, to, to turn our hearts and minds to God, to love him with all of our heart, that the Lord says, not part of it. So that would be one way of, of looking at these things, some manner of being a good, faithful disciple. And as I mentioned, mm-hmm. many scholars take, take that line. Um, right. Go, just yeah, real quick, ahead. Pastor Grotowitz. So, and I think, I think historically, too, when you look at this passage, historically in the way that it's been taken within the Church— the reading that you're suggesting or that you're bringing out here is is what has been brought out most by most church fathers too that that sure. here we have a picture of how the christian responds to the kingdom of god that that it is the most valuable thing there is and so the christian forsakes everything in order to stay stay with the kingdom and possess the kingdom at all costs and and i i think i know where you're going to go next that maybe that's not the correct reading of this parable but I, I think we should make this point that as we as and maybe you brought this out a little bit earlier too, what what we're going to say here that reading is not an unbiblical thought that that we would forsake all for the kingdom of God. That is a biblical thought. It's the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods before me." But the question that we're asking is: Is that what this parable is saying? And and so we want to yeah. keep that distinction. Sure, sure. Of course. And I, I love how you put it. Of course, that is not an unbiblical thought, to hear the first commandment, and just kind of have ears in tune with that, that to worship God is to love Him with everything right. And the question is, what is this parable saying? Now, even as I was reading on this, these parables, you know, one scholar said even Luther had that approach, that this is law, that this is God telling you you need to love me and be willing to forsake everything. And so even Luther seemed to have had this interpretation. I didn't read Luther specifically on this. Um, so if a listener out there finds something different and wants to shoot me an email, I'd love to hear it. Um, but Luther's a man who knew the gospel. And so even if he had a legalistic, or I shouldn't say legalistic, but interpret this to mean some sort of call to the first commandment, then maybe we shouldn't feel so bad. Uh, but I think there's another interpretation approach to look at this. Um, when you look at the other parables coming into this, I'd mentioned that earlier, that the context here is important. There's little, if anything, in them about man doing this work to achieve the kingdom. You have the parable of the sower, where the emphasis is on the sower, the seed, and the types of soil and growth that just happens. Then you have the parable of the, of the weeds, which again, you have a sower and you have seeds, and now you have weeds and you have wheat coming up, believers and unbelievers, and there's a couple of ways to look at that parable. The mustard seed, leaven, again, this idea of of the kingdom growing, starting small, getting big, and just growing, and nothing in there is mentioned about man's contributions and man striving to get into heaven. So, to suddenly switch gears, the parable of the hidden treasure and the 
pearl of great price, and suddenly this is, you know, the point of emphasis is on the man doing stuff to get heaven. It doesn't fit the stride of the other parables. But also, if we have to sell everything and give everything to get heaven, the reality is we don't do that. And this this would have to be taken in some harsh law passage, and God's law is good. It is righteous 100%, but we have to acknowledge in light of our sinfulness, we don't give up everything. We don't sell everything. And then when we contemplate, well, who does do that? Who is the one who fulfills the law? And who is the one who lays down his life as a ransom? Which is in Matthew 20, verse 28, when Jesus says he gives his life as a ransom for many. Then we can see these parables in a Christocentric way, that the one who does give all to get the treasure, that would have to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think seeing in that light really breaks things wide open for, for the reader, that this hidden treasure, the one who goes after it and gives everything to get it, and he's going to get it, or the, the merchant who's in search, he's looking for the fine pearls, and he finds one, and then he sells everything. There's this language of selling and buying. Well, the only price for sin, the one that fully covers the cost of sin, debts, and transgressions would be the cost of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then we see these parables as a great proclamation of the gospel and what God thinks of us. We are a treasure worth dying for, and Christ is going to do it and has done it. Right. Yeah, so I, I, I will confess that I favor that interpretation, where, where Christ is the one who goes and finds and sells and buys. And I, I think I, I think you're exactly right that it fits the context of the other parables. I, I think maybe you I don't know if you said this explicitly. In every other parable, there tends to be a a central figure who's doing something, and that central figure, whether it's the sower or the the one who plants the mustard seed, that central figure is God or Christ. Why wouldn't it be that here? Again, it, it's not unbiblical to say that. The Christian needs to cling with all that he has to the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. but but why that? Why would there be that sudden shift here, and and rather to see this parable not so much in that law sense that you have to go give up everything that you have, but rather in that gospel sense, this is what Jesus has done for you, and and he is telling this to his disciples, which I think you know again they're going to receive this in in faith. I, I like that. I like that interpretation, Pastor Gradowitz. I, I think that that fits the context better than the right. discipleship one. Right. Yes, I, I do too. And it is comforting for us. And it would have been comforting, I think, for the disciples who are still learning. And, you know, maybe they were afraid. I'm, I'm speculating there. But, but at the very least, they have a big learning curve ahead of them. And, you know, how, how comforting must it have been for them you know, when they're on the other side of things, when they're preaching and laboring after the resurrection, to come back to this passage and be comforted by their Lord's word, that he has given everything to purchase them, it's going to be okay. And certainly for the life of any Christian today, the Lord has purchased you. He, he has given everything in your stead. He has fulfilled the law when we haven't. And, that, yeah, I mean, that, that fits the context, that fits what Jesus says in at least Matthew chapter 5 that he comes to fulfill the law. 
and mm. to suddenly, you know, again, switch to the discipleship and you got it, you got it, doesn't fit the context and, and doesn't harmonize with the chief doctrine of, of justification, which we have running all throughout Holy Scripture. Mm. It, it's also, I think, worth, you know, the comfort in this, and I think you mentioned it, but maybe you could dig into it a little bit more. In, in the way that we're suggesting to read these parables, Jesus is the one who finds and sells and buys, and, and you and I, the sinner, we're the treasure. We're the, the pearl of great value, which, which I think should surprise us and yet be of great comfort to us that how, how is it that Christ can consider us his, his treasure or his, his pearl of great price? How can he? Because there's not, when we look at ourselves, when we look at humanity and we check the news, what is really the treasure about humanity? You know, everything that we have done, the sins that we commit, as we take an inventory of the sins of our own lives, my goodness, the record, the record is terrible and horrible. And so for God to call us a treasure because he loves us is a testament to who he is, a God of mercy, a God of steadfast love who knows the hairs on our head, they are numbered, a God who, as far as the east is from the west, he separates our sins, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And as a God of love and mercy, he sees our sins but still calls us a treasure. And so this takes us back to the Lord Jesus doesn't come to save us because we have merited it or we're his chosen people in some way, shape, or form, but he come, because he loves us. He comes to save us out of his love and mercy. I mean, it's a simple passage, but profound. God is love. It's part of his essence. It's who he, it's who he is. And we see that really manifested in this text, to call us a treasure, to call us a pearl of great price, and be willing to lay down his life, again, testifies how much God really does love us, even though we've done nothing to deserve that love. And I think, too, as you, you said with the disciples, in the context where they are, they're in the, we're in the middle of the section here in, in Matthew's Gospel, where there's quite a bit of opposition to Jesus and his disciples. And his disciples express varying levels of, of confusion in the midst of all of that. And so at, all, at the time of all this rejection, at the time of their own confusion, to have this very simple, pointed message of gospel that, that the Lord assures his disciples, even though you're being rejected by the world, you are the pearl of, of great value to me, and I've, I've paid everything so that you would be mine. That, that's a measure of comfort for the disciples as they continue to go through the, ministry, the, the Lord's ministry with him. And then, of course, after the, the resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, coming back to this statement as they, they will face persecution from the, the religious leaders, that this parable provides that simple, comforting thing for them to hold on to. Pastor Gardas, we have just about three minutes left here before, this, before the break. Sure. I mean, that echoes what I, what I was getting at earlier, that... For them, and for any Christian, it's not just the disciples, but for any Christian baptized believer in this world, we face a lot of trials and tribulations. And in those times, there arises the temptation to think we're not valuable, and we're not a treasure. And the devil will plant all sorts of seeds of his own in our heads to cause us to think these things. And so seeing this as a discipleship text, you know, again, a good biblical thought, everything I must do to forsake the kingdom and so forth. That is a law-driven interpretation. 
And the law is a burden because the law exposes our sins and everything that we have done. And so for the disciples in their time of learning, trying to figure things out, they need the gospel. The Lord gives them the gospel. We need the gospel every single day in our lives. We need law and gospel. But my point is here. The Lord tells us, cast your burdens on me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's a proclamation that just it, it never goes away for the believer. And I think in many sense that proclamation of coming to Christ to get rest shows itself right here when he teaches them and us, yeah, I, I'm the one who has given everything, and you are a treasure to me. You are loved. My goodness. I mean, there's so many applications for that wonderful proclamation. With just about a minute left, give us a few of those applications, Pastor Grodowitz. Yeah, sure. So where I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, as a preacher, you, you, you have people who come to the congregation, they have all sorts of sins and problems and issues, uh, suicide, depression, kids growing up in divorce-broken families. Man, that is just everywhere. I'm the headmaster of a school, and we are just seeing so many, thir- we see third-generation families, which means you have grandparents taking care of grandkids, you have kids coming from broken divorce households. And the feeling of loneliness, even being an orphan in this world, uh, can be countered and is to be countered by that holy word, God saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not alone. You're not an orphan. Not only that, but you are a treasure to me. You are my pearl. And by the way, I sent my son to die to give everything. I am willing to give everything for you and I have done it. Rejoice. Oh, baptized believer, you are mine. That's one application uh, right there. But, man, there's just so many scenarios and and people dealing with burdens who need to hear, you're not alone in this world, do not despair, your Savior loves you, and we can see that love in what he has done in his crucifixion and resurrection. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO, looking at the last part of Matthew chapter 13 this morning. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, February 20th. We're studying Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 58 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. He is the Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we were finishing up the parables of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value. Jesus then continues with the parable of the net. What does he have to say about the kingdom of heaven there? Yeah, well, here it's a net thrown into the sea, and it gathers fish of every kind, all sorts. And then he says, When it's full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. Angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think this one is a little more straightforward than the other two previous parables. It's an end times text. He says it'll be at the close of the end of the age. 
And you know, quite simply, this fishing this this fishing metaphor would have resonated certainly with the disciples who were fishermen. But you know, any fisherman who's gone out and caught fish, I like to fish. I mean, they're the ones we want to keep, and they're the ones that we just we want to throw away. And this this idea of throwing away the bad, you know, I I remember fishing as a kid, and and people may have disagreements on what fish to keep or not, but at least I grew up hearing that mud cats were not very good fishing. They weren't good fish to keep, and you just, you just didn't really eat a mud cat. I mean, they're called a mud cat for crying out loud. If you want to do catfish, you'd eat like a, a, a blue cat, um, a, a channel cat probably. But the, the mud cats, we didn't want those. And so I remember my uncle would just throw them on the bank when he caught them. And I remember thinking, well, you know, just throw them back in the pond. But he didn't want them even in the pond because he didn't want to catch them. And there was already so many of them. He would just take them, just throw them on the bank, you know, that, let them die. We've got enough of them already. And so that kind of came to my mind. Um, but the Lord's teaching here is, is, is stark and needs to get our attention. The good go into containers, the bad are thrown away, and so will be at the close of the age. There are the righteous, okay, the righteous inherit life eternal, and the bad Okay, the other ones, the, the evil, it says, are the ones who are thrown to the fiery furnace. So in this text, too, the question is, well, who are the righteous and who are the evil? And I think those are the two key terms to, to unpack. We were talking earlier about discipleship and, and forsaking all for the kingdom and keeping the first commandment before us and doing everything we can for the kingdom. And those are good, pious thoughts that, that Christians should have. However, a baptized believer should also recognize the one who has fulfilled the law, the one who has died to redeem and save us. That term righteous is a very, very important word because Matthew has a distinction between the righteousness that is God's and the righteousness that is of man. And they are different, in fact, so different, one will kill you and one will save you. The righteousness of man is that self-righteousness, the works of the flesh, the things that we do that we might think will get on God's good side and he will show favor upon us because we have great prayers and we do all these pious things and so forth. The righteousness of God is, is very different. It's imputed to the sinner. It's credited to the sinner who by faith receives it, apprehends it, and trusts in it. So it's not as if the evil and the righteous here is some sort of distinction between those who did more good works than the other. But when we see this again in light of Jesus' overarching proclamation that he is the one sent to save, then we, we, we can see the gospel shining in that term righteous, that once again, once again, this is God's saving work. The righteous are the ones who believe in the one whom the Father has sent. The evil they have rejected the good things of God, bound up in the sending of his Son. And they are the ones who go to hell. They are sent to the fiery furnace, and the righteous, I mean, they're the fish that get kept. And, and that's a good thing in this text. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts, Pastor Grotowitz. One is, as you mentioned, the disciples, many of them were fishermen. And Jesus, in his call to them in Matthew chapter 4, at least to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he called them to be fishers of men. And and I don't know, here at the end of, of this discourse, Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples, 
he, he changes the picture. Most of the other parables have had something to do with agriculture. There's been a lot of seeds being planted. And here it's, it's a, the fish now being caught. Is, is, there, is there a hearkening back to their original call to be fishers of men and, and a reminder to the disciples of, of what that mission will be with this parable here at the end of the, this discourse? That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that before before just now, but I, I, I think that's that's spot on. I mean, how could they have heard this and not thought about their profession as fishermen? You know, I mean, I used to play drums before going into the ministry, and just someone mentions drummer or drumstick or cymbal, and I just immediately, you have my attention, you know. And for them to have done this professionally, sure, and, and to have been called out of fishing, but here Jesus is teaching about it, I think that really would have resonated with them. And when they think about the Lord Jesus telling them, you will be fishers of men, they had to have connected the dots to see, yes, we are going to be fishers of men. We're going to go out, except we're not going to have a fishing pole. We're going to have a net. Of course, they fish with nets, we know. But this net is going to go into the sea and gather fish of, then it says, every kind. All the fish are coming in. On Judgment Day, no one is excluded. All people are before God, and there will be the good fish and the bad fish, or to use another metaphor that Matthew uses, the sheep and the goats, uh, towards the end of uh, Matthew uh, chapter uh, 25, I believe, is when the sheep and goats narrative comes forth. And so even for the Christian reader who has read through Matthew, to the end, when we go back and read this parable, having read the sheep and the goats metaphor, for us that would have, a resonance too, that on Judgment Day, after the reaping, you know, there are the righteous and there are the evil. And for the disciples, on their end of things, they're going to be ones casting the net. They're going to be ones, uh, you know, casting the net um, in the sense that they're preaching the word. I mean, that's how they are going to be fishers of men. In this text, it's the angels who come out and, of course, they separate the evil and the righteous and throw them in the fiery furnace. And, and so in, in that sense, I, I see in the parable of the net a bit of a, I, I think it would be fair to say, a summary and some, some features from the other parables. So this, this matter of the net being thrown out and gathering fish of every kind is not all that different, I, I think, than the parable of the sower, where the seed is sown on every type of soil, regardless of whether it's good or bad. This matter of the judgment happening at the close of the age, I think, is is similar to so you've got the parable of the weeds, that the judgment comes at the end, not right now. The, the weeds and the wheat aren't harvested now, but at the end they will be. And you, this parable seems to be sort of drawing all these things together for, for the disciples. Is that a, a fair thing to look at, Pastor Grotowitz? Yeah, sure, I think so. I mean, you have two parables, and I would agree. There's a lot of similarities between the parable of the weeds and the parable of the net. And we, we can glean much from it. I mean, the, in the parable of the weeds, you know, similar thing, the idea of judgment coming coming at the end, which is a way to be, a call to be patient. I mean, in the parable of the weeds, of course, the, the, the disciples, or the, the, the people in the parable, they do ask the question, you know, hey, do you want us to go and gather, to gather them, to pull out all these weeds sown really next to the uh, the good crop, and the master widely says, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the weed along with them. There's a potential of, if you, you try to take out the unbeliever too early, the believer, there's going to be some collateral damage, possibly, just wait. 
at the judgment day, when all things come to an end, the Lord will take care of these things. Jump into the parable in that similar thing. At the close of the age, the angels, they come out and they do some here as they separate the evil from the righteous. So, again, that separation happening at the end of the age, not now. And God's judgments, they are just and they are right. Whenever this happens, it is the end, which causes us to question then, well, how, how am I righteous? How am I going to be the one who goes into eternal life? I want to be the good fish, not the one that's thrown away. And those are good questions to ask, necessary questions even for the believer to ask. And, of course, the answer is never to turn one to his or herself, but the answer to that question is the proclamation of Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. And that's what the disciples will take out into the world. Right. A righteousness not our own, but the righteousness that is Christ's and given to us, received through faith. So Jesus then, he finishes his parables here in verse 50, and and right away he asks his disciples, have you understood all these things? They say yes, which always kind of makes me scratch my head a bit. Did they... So many times in the Gospels, the disciples don't get it. Here they say, sure we do. Jesus, of course, doesn't question them, and he gives them an answer about scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven. What, I don't know, Pastor Gratis, do you think, did, did they really get it, or is that maybe just not the right question to ask? And then what is Jesus saying when he talks about these scribes trained for the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, well, for better or for worse, Pastor Apple, I've had the same thought. And, and seeing how they are from here onward and the mistakes that they make, and even I, the transfiguration comes to mind. You know, when Peter wants to build three tents for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, they're still putting the pieces of the puzzle together. I, it's like when my kids, I ask, do you understand what I'm telling you? And they say yes. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I, don't, I don't think you really do, but I'm just going to keep on rolling with what I'm saying. Maybe some of that is going on right here. The Lord is going to just keep, you know, teaching, and he doesn't, of course, respond specifically to that answer, you know, something like, well, I don't think you really do believe. And, you know, maybe their question of, yes, they understand, was more of, you know, we, we believe these things. It's an understanding out of faith. I'm wondering if that could be part of it as well, because, you know, going back to um, Matthew 13, verse 23, just for a second, I know we're close on time, but... That word of understanding right here can be a synonym for faith. As for what was sown on good soil, this is one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit. Their understanding in the sense of believing and trusting. And maybe that's going on here in in, um, in verse 51. I didn't check to see if that was the, great, the, the same Greek term. But nonetheless, it could be some of that, that they, they do understand it and that they believe it, and they'll figure things out as they go. Now, on to the... The scribe stuff, you know, what does this mean? Every scribe is trained for the kingdom. You, you have a few different interpretations. You know, one interesting take is that this is a reference to Matthew, who was a tax collector, we know, but he would have had some scribal capabilities. He would have been a very accurate recorder of things and would have known how to take detailed notes. And, of course, he's one of the evangelists. We have his account written for us, this inspired word right here in, in this gospel. So it could be a reference to him. Uh, another scholar I read said this is just every Christian who knows how to be um, scribal with the Word of God, so to speak. That is to say, he knows how to read the old and read the new because the Christian has been brought up in the church, trained for the kingdom. And, and that word trained there, by the way, is um, 
the, the same the same variant of the word disciple or to disciple. It's in a verbal form right here. They have been discipled in the kingdom. So now we think about catechesis, and my mind is thinking about someone who's going to be gone through some rigorous confirmation study. And they're going to know how to be a scribe in the sense they can they can speak and even write about things in the old and the new because they've been trained, they've been discipled, they've been taught in the kingdom. Uh, and, and then another point, and I'm going to be cautious about this, but this, this did come to my mind. Could this be the Lord also? And you know, again, as you mentioned earlier, he, he's talking to the disciples here. Uh, there, there's nothing in the text that I see that we switch to the crowd at this point. But could this word maybe have gotten out to the scribes who are on the other side of the fence and have heard Jesus say such a thing and perhaps by the grace of God think, you know, I could use my scribal abilities for the sake of the kingdom. I want to be cautious putting that forward, but that thought, too, you know, came to me as I was working through this, that maybe there could have been a scribe who heard this and thought, you know what, instead of using my, my, um, my abilities for the wrong, I can actually do it for the good. That's a cautious interpretation. The other two, I think, are more... Um, more in the ballpark, so to speak. On that last line, and that that is intriguing, and, and maybe if I can offer just a, a slight um, a redirection of that thought, it, it's striking when you think of Matthew's Gospel that the scribes as a, a character within the narrative often function along with the Pharisees as one of Jesus' opponents. They're, they're very rarely viewed in a positive light, I think is, is a fair thing to say, according to the way Matthew writes his Gospel. And so to see Jesus here talk about a scribe in a positive way, I think stands out, perhaps to the effect that that one of the things that Jesus is saying is that, well, what does it mean to be a true scribe? Is it to be the scribes and Pharisees who are constantly opposing Jesus and thinking that they can read the Old Testament without Jesus? Or does it mean, rather, as I think Jesus would say, to be a, a true scribe in God's kingdom is to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus and to recognize him as the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament. And in that way, then, the, the disciple, the one who is the, the scribe in the kingdom of God, is bringing out of that treasure old and new, reading the Old Testament in light of Jesus, seeing, seeing what is being written in the New Testament, all around Christ and him crucified. That, that's one way that I was kind of maybe redirecting what, what you were thinking there in terms of scribes. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, and and that, that's well said. And and what I was trying to say, probably in vain, about the Christian who is scribal, meaning the Christian can read the old and read the new and see it for what it is, not some law book on morality, or Jesus coming just to give us some more laws to do, but all of Scripture testifying to God's saving work manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ, a manifestation and testimony that runs throughout both Testaments. So we can read the Old Testament today and see that it points us to our Savior. Uh, the, uh, Jesus himself says this, that the Law and the Prophets bear witness about him. So to see the Law and the Prophets bearing witness about Jesus is consistent with what God tells us. And then in the New Testament we have, I mean, treasures there all over the place. That's the scribe in the right way. The scribe in the wrong way would be to read it and reject Christ or not see Christ in it. That's in the wrong sense of being a scribe. That the scribes had some theological training and understanding 
Uh, we get evidence of that in Matthew 17, a text I read earlier this morning with some of the students. And th this did come to me as I was thinking about this interview. The scribes say, first, Elijah must come. So the scribes in Jesus' day knew Elijah had to come first. Of course, if they were unbelieving scribes, which, as you mentioned, they're, they're always, put, I say always, many, many times they're in a negative light. They would, they would have missed Elijah in the person of John the Baptist. That John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah to point the way to Christ. And so if you want to say Elijah must come, that is in the sense that he comes. The New Testament you know, teaches that as well. You miss that, you're not being a good scribe. You're not a scribe trained in the kingdom, but um, really you're a scribe trained and influenced by the devil if you are a scribe operating in wicked unbelief. Mm. I know that's stark, but that's where we have to go with it. Mm. And I, I think that I think that fits with what we were saying earlier, or what you were saying earlier about the have you understood all of these things? And they say yes, which doesn't necessarily mean that they mentally comprehended everything in the sense that you know two plus two is four, but they they believed it. And so the scribes might have had the head knowledge all lined up in in their head perfectly, as you you quoted from Matthew twenty one earlier, where they get what Jesus is saying, but they don't believe it. Well, the sure. disciples, maybe they don't fully always get it in the sense that they understand, but they believe it. And so they rightly answer yes, and they're rightly called a scribe of the kingdom of heaven because they they believe Jesus, which is, that's where the dividing line actually is, is whether or not you gotcha. believe Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, Pastor Gratis, we have just about seven minutes left on the morning. The text continues. Jesus has finished his parables, and he goes on to his hometown, to Nazareth. And, and when he arrives there in the synagogue, he teaches, and, and the people are astonished. And they, they ask these five, five questions, I think. Yeah, several, several questions in a row that I think invite us to reflect upon who Jesus is. They ask these questions. They don't, it seems, believe Jesus, but, but maybe these questions invite us to reflect on what we believe about Jesus. What, take us into this scene that, that happens in Nazareth. Right, so here, the parables are now finished, and he goes away from there. So we have a change in scenery, where before he was just speaking to the disciples, now things are going to broaden, and he goes into his hometown, he goes to Nazareth, and so he comes and he goes to the synagogue. I mean, that's, if you want to teach religion, that's the place where you go. And his teaching is, I mean, it's, it's causing the people to astonish. And they even ask, where he's got wisdom, he's got the head knowledge, he's got wisdom, and he's got these mighty works. So in, in verse 54, things are off to a pretty good start. I mean, isn't it great to be a pastor and your preaching is astonishing the people and they're just marveling on just, man, how great Pastor Apple is and how wise he is, and yet he is so young. It's like that, you know, you're fresh out of seminary, and you come back and you preach, you're preaching at a church, and, and people are like, wow, man, this is great. Uh, those compliments, I mean, they, they do have a place. They can't go to your head, but that's a, that's a different discussion. All right, then 55, and I, I've always seen that to be a very stark shift in the people, to go from astonishment and asking questions Wait a second, is not this the carpenter's son, uh, which is an allusion to Joseph, and perhaps Joseph, it seems like he did have an influence there. He is the carpenter's son, and then it's not his mother called Mary, and then we know his brothers. There's James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and not, all his sisters are with us. Where then 
did this man, this man, get all these things? And then verse 57, and they took offense at him. So they're seeing things in a very earthly, worldly way. Here's a man, nothing but a man. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. We know his mom. We know his dad. Where did he get this wisdom from? And they, be, they, they, they second guess the person and even the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. They see nothing but a man. And to the reason, to the senses, that's all there was before them, a man. Now, he did mighty works, and faith, faith should respond to say, you know, I believe in his works, and we see examples of that in the Gospels, people hearing reports about Christ and going to him out of faith because they want and believe he can heal uh, their daughter, child, so forth. So had these people had that living, active faith, they would have seen more than a man to believe him who he is. Uh, You know, faith does not need a miracle. Faith does not need to be impressed. Faith believes in what God says. Faith believes in his word. And I find it fascinating in the Gospels when, when a report will go out and people believe that report and they come to Jesus wanting his help. Or they believe his teaching uh, even before uh, seeing some sort of miracle. I mean, here I'm reminded of the Lord's words to Thomas. Um, Blessed are those who believe and had not seen. Where faith kicks in because faith has heard the word. And of course, the golden passage on this from Romans 10 Faith comes from hearing the words of Christ. We're not seeing that going on here. These people, they become scandalized and offended. Uh, but before I go on, do you have any questions or comments, or you want to go in a different direction? No, I think that's all very helpful to, to point to the importance of hearing the word and believing it, that that's where faith is going right. to come. And I think that helps with the last verse of this text as to why Jesus didn't do mighty works there, which may seem strange, but when we connect the matter of faith and hearing and not to the mighty works, I think that last verse makes, makes good sense. Pastor Agratis, we have three minutes left, just so the heads up. Right, sure. I mean, I, I think the most sensible explanation, they're not doing any mighty works. Well, it says it right here. It's because of their unbelief. They don't want him there. They, they, they don't believe in who he is. They don't take what he is saying and believe and hold on to it. And so with unbelief, Unbelief is saying, God, go away. Unbelief is rejection. Unbelief is, get out of my life. I don't want to hear from you anymore. I'm going to do it my own way. Unbelief is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, those are some sharp words, but theologically, that's where we have to be on this. And so this, this we've kind of come full circle. And I started off talking about parables, um, having the intent for the unbeliever to close their eyes and to shut off their ears. Parables are not just these, um, a literary device of Jesus being creative, and so we now have license to be creative. That's another discussion as well. But here's an example. Jesus is teaching. We know he, he teaches in parables, even to the crowds. Matthew himself says that. And they're not buying it. Their eyes are shut, and their ears are being closed. So here we see Isaiah's prophecy uh, coming into the picture once again. It's not explicit, but we do see the effect of people, unbelievers, receiving God's teaching, and unfortunately, their eyes stay shut to it, and they want him to go away. Um, You know, this kind of reminds me, too, I don't want to push this analogy too far, but 
again, the seminarian has a home church. He leaves his home church. He goes and he, you know, gets his MDiv, and he comes back to preach at his home church. And the people there are so excited and happy, but they're going to call him by his first name. They're going to tell a story. I remember when you were young. And it's a, it's a big challenge for them. I'm not at all comparing them to the, the unbelievers in this text. Please don't misunderstand me. But there is some work on their part to get used to seeing this young man is now one who is in the office. And faith needs to understand that. This, this person, this young boy who was in my Sunday school class or whatever, I saw the trouble he got into, and so it's now placed in an office for my good. I think that's hard for the people. We need to be patient. And, and again, I'm not comparing them to the crowds here. But there is this need, there is this need to be catechized beyond what we see. That would be the point of similarity, to believe in what God has said and done over and above what we're, we're taking in with our senses. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is the Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 58. Pastor Agrotowitz, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jesus is not just a man. He's not only the Son of Mary. He is the Son of God. He is the one who gave up everything to buy you his pearl of great value, his hidden treasure. You are his. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.